Well, good morning. Back in the 1990s, almost 30 years ago, every year I would go to a conference in Pittsburgh called the Soli Deo Gloria Conference. It was at that conference I first saw Alastair Begg, Derek Thomas, Sinclair Ferguson, Eric Alexander. I mean, they brought the big guns in from the big island over in Britain. But I also saw John MacArthur there for the very first time. Man, was I thrilled. Here comes John. He walks in wearing black pants, a black shirt, a gold tie, and a black and gold blazer. And I said then, one day, I will preach wearing that outfit. Well, today's the day. All right. Well, today, and if you want to get your Bibles ready, we're going to go to Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21 in just a minute. But I'm going to start this sermon in a participatory manner, and Max told me up here he will make sure you participate. It's going to be easy. Look at the sermon title. God equips his believers. And if you believe today's sermon title is true, I'm going to ask you for a very brief few seconds to stand with me. If you believe this sermon title is true, please stand with me, and I want you to raise your right hand. And I want you to repeat after me, God equips his believers. You ready? God equips his believers. One more time. God equips his believers. You may be seated. Thank you. All right, well, that gets the blood flowing. That gets our brain thinking, and hopefully you know where I'm going to go today. My job is to endeavor to give you all the solid evidence that this sermon title is not only true, but also to endeavor to embolden and emblazon you in your hearts and on your minds that God indeed does this. Now, I'm going to give you a couple homework assignments today, and here's the first one. When you get home, if you're brave enough, grab a little post-it note, or if no one has post-it notes, a little piece of paper and some tape. Write that down on that post-it note. God equips his believers and put it on your bathroom mirror. Mike, why would we put it on our bathroom mirror? Well, where do you go multiple times a day? You're going to brush your teeth, you're going to shave, you're going to do makeup. Everything happens in front of the mirror. So if it's right there, God equips his believers, you're going to see it. And I'm going to ask you to do it for three weeks. Mike, why three weeks? Well, most experts tell us that a habit is formed over a three-week period. You put that post-it note on your mirror and see it for three weeks, you're going to embolden and emblazon that in your hearts and in your minds. And after three weeks, I believe you'll have this idea in your mind that your great and glorious God indeed does equip you if you are truly a follower of His, a believer in Christ Jesus the Lord, and that this equipping God does so in through enduring your trials that Brady so splendidly walked us through last week. So let's go to Hebrews 13. If you open your Bibles with me, 13. Chapter 20, I'm sorry, verse 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21. 
Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we ask you to equip our hearts and minds today with these truths, to share them with others, and let them be our guiding light so long as we live. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So today's message is going to be part expository. We're going to dig into the scriptures and expose what they say, and part topical. These two verses probably deserve two weeks or more of preaching, but we only have today. So verse 20 will feel a bit more expository. Verse 21, probably a bit more topical, definitely more applicable. Here's what I'm going to endeavor to show you. From verse 20, I want you to see, one, the problem of man. And when I say man, that means men and women. The problem of our human race. Number two, then, is the answer for man. The answer for men and women in our human race. Then we'll go in transition into verse 21, the Christian life in response. And we'll look at little three breakdowns there that'll be pretty quick. How does God equip us? For what does God equip us? And the last one, which is going to be fun, how do we respond? So first, a bit of introduction about the book of Hebrews and about the Bible in general. Now, every verse that we look at has a section that it's in. And every section is part of a chapter. And every chapter is part of a whole, the book. We are in the book of Hebrews. But then that book is a part of either the Old or the New Testament and a whole of the Bible. They taught us in seminary, you always have to see how all that fits in with the section that you are doing. And hopefully we never forget that. But the book of Hebrews is an amazing book. Now, there's a lot of debate on the author, and we're not going to go into that today. But I can remember reading this a while back. John MacArthur said this about Hebrews. He said, the emphases on the Levitical priesthood and on sacrifices, as well as the absence of any reference to the Gentiles, support the conclusion that a community of Hebrews was the recipient of the epistle. Then he also made another point, which has stuck with me for a long time. Maybe it'll help you today as you've, if you've ever been challenged, especially in chapter 6 of Hebrews, when it sounds like people who are saved are losing their salvation. Here's what he says. A proper interpretation requires the recognition that this book addresses three distinct groups. The book of Hebrews is talking to three different distinct groups. Number one is believers, those saved and sanctified by God through Christ. Number two are unbelievers, but these unbelievers are intellectually convinced of the gospel. They probably acted like they were saved, maybe even thought they were saved, but they were not fully committed. They had not fully surrendered themselves to Jesus. They were still stuck in the Jewish mode. And then the third group is unbelievers who were attracted by the gospel, who showed up and they were knowing a little about the person of Christ, but they had reached no final conviction at all about him. So when you read the book of Hebrews, you want to make sure you know which audience is being talked to. 
Well, today it's easy. (laughs) Hebrews 13 is near the wrap-up of the book, and he is definitely talking to believers. So as we know, if he's talking to believers then, who's he talking to now? Believers. What does that mean for us? Well, when we gather together here, there might be the same type of three groups, right? We know for certain there's at least two. As Pastor Darren always tells us, there are unbelievers in the midst in a group this size. Every Sunday. But this message today is believer, for believers. But I never want to discount the working and the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the unbelieving heart when preaching and teaching the Scriptures take place. And we should always be in prayer for that. So the things we discuss today are for those who understand and believe the gospel, but are also daily wrestling with the flesh to endeavor to live this life. And we all are in that boat as believers. So I want you to leave today knowing that God truly does and will equip His believers. But here's another important point to know, and this is a sobering thought. God is not obligated to equip the unbeliever. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? God does shower grace down on unbelievers at times, but He is not required or obligated to equip them. And quite frankly, as we'll soon see, since His equipping comes from His Word, only those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them to make known the scriptures, scriptures can be equipped. You could even make the, article, or make the argument that God can't equip them because they don't have the Spirit. All right, so I'm going to cheat and give you a quick outline of the book of Hebrews from Warren Wiersbe, another one of my comment, favorite commentators. He gave it just three points in general. He said the book of Hebrews, chapters 1 through 6, is all about a superior person, that being Jesus. Chapters 7 to 10 is all about a superior priesthood, Christ, in the likeness of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And then lastly, a superior principle, that being faith, in chapters 11, 12, and 13. So where are we? We are in chapter 13, so we're hanging out in Wiresby's third point, a superior principle. Now, he gives more notes under those, but this is just kind of a quick and easy reference for today. We'll be in that area about the person a little bit, not so much the priesthood, but definitely about faith and Christian life through that equipping. But Wiresby also says this, I thought was really good. He tells us we can gather together the major themes here in our little section of Scripture as peace, the resurrected Christ, the blood, the covenant, spiritual perfection or maturity, and God's work in the believers. And now you can see why this should probably go on for a couple Sundays. Rick Phillips, another, I have so many favorite commentators. He says this, this is a benediction. The scripture he read, he says, is a benediction, a prayer to God on behalf of the believers, the readers, that summarizes the whole letter. But I'm trying to give us a simple understanding, and that's where I came up with the title. So if you look at the very beginning of verse 20, it says, now the God, or you may have now may the God, and then from verse 21, equip you. May the God of peace, if you want to add that in, verse 21, equip you. That's the simple point of the passage. After 13 chapters, the writer, 
says, now the God of peace equip you. And so all the other phrases that we're going to look at are really descriptors to the short and blunt comment. And that this is the writer's final summation, a doxology of sorts, for the believers to know of God equips, that God equips him. But when we begin to look at the descriptors, what's the first one? Now may the God of what? Peace. Well, now we got a problem. Because overall, and we were all once in this boat too, we do not have peace with God. Unbelievers do not have peace with God. He's the God of peace, but no one has it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, correct? So let's see the problem a little deeper than see the descriptors given us to see the answer to the problem. As it regards peace, potentially a whole sermon series itself, John Owens, in his masterful commentary, subtitled The Epistle of Warning, says he is the author of peace. He purposed designed and prepared it in the eternal counsels of his own will, and he communicates peace by Jesus Christ. Amen? Thank you, TJ. And R. Kent Hughes, <coughs> another commentator, says, peace is intrinsic to the character and existence of God. God is called the God of peace at least five other times in the New Testament. Then Phillips added this, whereas man is gripped in his own chaos, God has within himself the peace to give. We can never do his will until we first receive his peace. We can never do his will until we first receive his peace. And then Rick Phillips quotes this amazing statement from Puritan John Flavel who lived from 1627 to 1691, preaching on this text, here's what Flavel imagines. He imagines the conversation that must have taken place before the worlds were born, and he uses it to exhort to the highest devotion to the God who thus arranged our salvation. As pastor would say, this is worth coming to church for. Imagine the scene courts of heaven, God and His Son together, and we are sitting in that heavenly theater listening to this very conversation, and here it is. The Father says of us, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? God proclaims. Christ replies, O oh my Father, such is my love too and pity for them, then rather that they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all their bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. Thy wrath, then, that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. God responds to Christ. But my son, says God, 
if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. And Christ replied, Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasure, yet I am content to undertake it. Wow. And as I read that, a scripture popped to mind and I immediately put it in this message. Hopefully it popped in your mind, and that's Isaiah 53. I just made Jay Stone King happy. Verses 11 and 12, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And a few more scripture I'll throw your way. Romans 5, 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I will never forget comedian Ken Davis, who is one of the funniest guys I've ever heard, got real serious for a moment one time. And he said, many times when I come here, I'm preaching, whenever he goes to be a guest, he says, I often think, if this church caught on fire, what would I do? And I like to think I'd come and I'd grab Brady and help his family get out the door. I know Rick's over here, so I've got to get Rick and Bob and Nancy and get them out, and I'd keep coming for as long as I possibly could. He said, but there's those rare occasions when I'm talking that my daughter has joined me, and she's out in the back foyer selling merchandise, and I can't honestly tell you that I would come get you first, because that's my daughter. And then he said, but God. God didn't run out and grab his son. He put his son on the cross so that he could get all of us out of here if we would so put our faith and trust in him. John MacArthur says this in a bit of a preview of our application today. He says, Christian growth and obedience have nothing to do with our own power. Peace through the blood of the cross. That's the power. Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Or 2 Corinthians 3.5, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. And when I read that, the third stanza of Rock of Ages came to mind. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So our problem is that we are not at peace with God, but at war or enmity. But thanks be to God, we're already seeing there's an answer, and it is and only is Jesus Christ. So the problem restated, we're not at peace, we are all cursed, the unbeliever, at war or enmity with God. And our response, well, 
That's another part of the problem because we can't respond because we're what? We're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 tells us. But in Hebrews 13.20, we see the answer. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. So I'm going to break that down. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead, we're going to go there, the great shepherd of the sheep, even though Darren preached on Psalm 23 a few weeks ago, we're going to go there briefly, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. The problem is answered through Jesus and only through him. The great shepherd of the sheep who is brought up from the covenant. We'll go there, then we'll go to the eternal covenant. So we are now deep in the depths of theological richness. The great shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus our Lord. Commentaries that I read really focus a lot on the blood and the covenant, aptly so, right? But I don't want us to miss, especially in light of our equipping, that it is done in and through Jesus our great shepherd. Now, again, Darren did marvelously tell us a couple weeks ago that we don't have to dwell here long, but I do want to take you to John chapter 10, which he probably did too. And I want you to hear 11 through 15 from the words of Jesus himself. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, don't miss this part, And not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I, on the other hand, implied, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And in that last statement, we see the covenant and we see the cross. Do you see it? I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, I fondly remember my Greek and New Testament professor, Dr. Robeson, Pastor Robeson, Ed Robeson, both not only for his love of this section of Hebrews, he thought this was one of the greatest sections ever, but he also talking about John chapter 10, gave us this command and stood there and pounded on his pulpit and said, don't be a hireling. Don't. And we're like walking out of there going, yeah, I don't want to be a hireling. Do you want to be? I don't want to be a hireling. The one who grants us our salvation is a gift and it gives us peace and ultimately equips us is also our shepherd who cares for us and what? Makes us lie down in green pastures, and beside still waters. So let's move on. God did this by what? Raising Jesus from the dead. That's what our scripture tells us here. Paul gives us such great insight into the importance of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't read that for a while, I suggest you do that. But the resurrection is so critical to the whole gospel story. No resurrection, No resurrection body for us. You want this one for the rest of eternity? I don't. No completed glory for Jesus to return to his Father without a resurrection, right? So Paul tells us exactly what this means in Acts 26. I was so glad I found this scripture. Acts 26, 
22 to 23, Paul says, So, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. Verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. So without the resurrection, there's no proclaiming of light. There's no first fruits, and hopefully we get the picture. Next we see the blood of the covenant. Rick Phillips says the book of Hebrews is soaked in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he gave three statements that I think we need to hear. The first statement that the blood of Christ makes is God's holy judgment on sin. Sin has to be paid for, right? And there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, another great axiom from the book of Hebrews. Number two, the blood of Christ also shows the great magnitude of God's love for us. Think back to Flavel's heavenly discussion. J.I. Packer states the New Testament writers constantly point to the cross of Christ as the crowning proof of the reality and boundlessness of God's love. And third and finally, the blood of Christ proclaims God's full involvement in our world at every level. Okay, so now I brought the world into it. (laughs) So the continued talk of covenants is another proof to that this book is directed towards a Hebrew audience. And Rick Phillips said this, which really kind of slapped me awake. He said, in light of the cross of Christ, the accusation that God is far off and aloof from the reality of this world is, in fact, the greatest of all blasphemies. We always need to be careful about any claims that God doesn't know or understand what I'm going through or care about our lives and problems. He is intimately involved, and His care and His love is so far above anything we can imagine. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us, Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Puritan John Owen sums it up this way, the blood of this covenant is the blood of Christ Himself. It was a sacrifice unto God, and by the covenant it was confirmed. By the blood of Christ, an end was put to the old covenant with all its services and promises. Atonement was made for sin. The church was sanctified or dedicated to God. The law was fulfilled, the threatenings of death executed, eternal redemption obtained, the promise of the covenant confirmed, and by one offering, one offering, they who were sanctified are perfected forever. And by this point, I'm just marveling at all these, all these Puritans, their ability so eloquently proclaim not only theology, but do, do it systematically and give us these great thoughts. So I thought it would be good for us to hear that covenant itself. What was the covenant? Well, it was first in Jeremiah 31, but the author of Hebrews repeats it for us. In Hebrews 8, 10 to 12, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, God says. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember 
their sins no more. Hughes tells us specifically the foundation of our highest dreams is the everlasting, unbreakable new covenant promise. Do you ever think about that? You ever think about your highest dreams being this new covenant? The promise is nothing less, he says, than a renewed heart and a personal relationship with God through the atoning work of God the Son and the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. We have His word for it that all this is ours if we come to Him. Then if I'm reading my new Greek Testament right, at the end of the verse, at least in the order, in the original it says, the Lord of us, Jesus. I kind of like that. The Lord of us, Jesus. Now the New American says, even Jesus our Lord, but even is in italics for understanding. Jesus our Lord. How fitting since it's all of Him anyway, right? So now we go on to the third point for today's message. After the problem... And then the answer, we come to the Christian life and the equipping of God to live it. Now, I'm going to get Daryl excited for a second because I'm going to talk about a Greek word. Katartizo, for equip, means not just that. It means to complete. It means to prepare, to equip. Bob's going to like this, to fit together. Some translations call it to make you perfect. Wiresby says, it's an unfamiliar word to us, but it was familiar to the people who received this letter. The doctors then knew it because it meant to set a broken bone. Anybody in here had a broken bone? And the fishermen, it meant to mend a broken net. To sailors, it meant to outfit a ship for voyage. And to soldiers, it meant to equip an army for battle. That's a lot of meaning for one little word. But that's what we're talking about when we talk about God equipping us. He's mending us. He's working on us. And he says our Savior wants to equip us for life on earth. And he does And he will. That's the promise. And that's why we need a post-it note on our mirror to remind us. But what is the equipping us to do and prepare us for? Well, look at that last part of the verse, step by step. Equip you, what? In every good thing, to do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is where we divert away from more expository preaching to topical or practical, because that's all the time we got. So I want us to see, as Wiresby set me up perfectly on this, number one, how does God equip us? How does He equip us? Just a few basic reminders to remind us of how God builds us up as believers. Notice the phrase, through Jesus Christ. This is the main point to really grasp. God equips us through Christ, and since He is the only good one, right, then it is every good thing. Well, and who is Jesus? Well, the beginning of the Gospel of John tells us that, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. The Word was God. God primarily equips us through His Word, which is His Son. What does that initially prompt in our minds? We must be in the Word. 
<clears throat> if not, then there's no equipping. Get it in our heads. No word, no equipping. Now take to the very beginning of the letter to the Hebrews. What does it say there? God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days did what? Spoke to us, past tense, in His Son. Spoken. Done. No more speaking needed. No more Bible needing to be written. Christ is it. It is finished. So to be equipped, we need to get to know Jesus and His Word. And Paul does a great job of that for us in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so what? Walk in Him having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So we study and learn of Christ through His Word. We use that to walk in Him. And then we also remember this very important point that Paul says, we have the mind of Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about that one? We have the mind of Christ as believers. All right, so now it's where I get to issue you a challenge. And I feel strongly about this for years and wanted to throw this out there today. If you do not have a solid disciple discipline in place to read and study God's Word, I am here to help. I'm happy to sit down with anyone in our church family and talk about and talk through with you and develop a plan for you to be equipped by God's Word. So no excuses now. And ladies, send your men to me. Let's go. I don't have it perfectly, but it is what has really helped me, which I will tell you about in just a minute. But also, how does He equip us? Through His Word, through the Holy Spirit. Remember, the same Holy Spirit that indwelt Jesus Christ while on earth is the same Holy Spirit that indwells you today and me. You're like, really? Yes, there's only one Holy Spirit. It's the same one. This is the essence. So how does the equipping work? The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit equips us by teaching us all truth. There's not any truth that we do not have and do not have access to. Listen to Jesus again, the Gospel of John. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you, eh, you know, just a few things. No. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said. When the Bible says all, what does it mean? It means all. And there's two of them in that one. 1 Corinthians 2.12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Romans 8 reminds us the spirit intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit is huge in our equipping. So we have the Word and we have this Holy Spirit. But He also equips us through the church. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are equipping one another. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And he also equips us through trials and tribulations of life. Brady showed us again last week that we are to count it all joy. Well, many of you all are very new to this church, at least in the last 10 years, and you may not know 
the Howard family story. And I can tell you honestly, it was pretty hard to count it all joy when you first find out your wife of 24 years has been diagnosed with inoperable cancer. But I can tell you this, in this, what I call the story of three A's, Amy, Anita, and Abigail, how God equips you. And he did it first through Amy. When she sat there and said, I am not going to ask God why. And I don't want you to either. She said this to all the kids. I'm asking, why not me? He gave me this, and he doesn't make mistakes. Wow. And for nine months, she fought valiantly and was a fabulous witness that equipped me beyond anything I could imagine. And then it was just a few months after that, standing in the back in the foyer, waiting in line to shake hands with Pastor, that I meet Anita. And about a year or so after that, after counseling with pastor and the elders, we went on our first date. And three years after that, we got married. More equipping from God through living life and getting counsel from biblical people. And then Abigail, who loses her mom at seven, has a brain tumor at age 10. That is removed Six years later, this past summer, it comes back. And yet again, surgery with a very life-threatening complication. Equipped by my daughter from God. Amy, Anita, and Abigail. And he's still equipping us. I don't know what else he's got in mind, but we'll see. So then for what does God equip us? These are rapid fire for you. Number one's evangelism, right? Go and make disciples. We need to be equipped to tell the gospel story. No fear. But also good works, right? We're not saved unto them. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are saved unto good works, not by good works. And then life works. And then discipleship and relationship. There are people we can help. There are people that can help us. Study the one another sometimes. See how God's plan is to keep us together no matter what the world says or dictates to us. Amen? We've seen how He equips us. For what does He equip us? And now I'll leave you with the last one. How do we respond? This is so how God works. Read the Old Testament. It tells about how Israel responds to God, and oftentimes it wasn't very good, was it? Or look at the New Testament. And see how the disciples botched things up on a regular basis. Well, it doesn't sound a whole lot different from you and me, does it? But God demands a response either way from His equipping. God demands a response. One of my favorite pastor teachers up in Pittsburgh, Bruce Bickle, always exhorted the hearers in his teaching, now what am I going to do about what I just learned? What am I going to do about what I just heard? And here they come. You ready? A few thoughts on how you should respond. Number one, be ready. Be equipped. Don't be blindsided by the evil one. Know his tactics. But better yet, know how Christ responded. How did Christ respond to Satan in the desert? Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. Be alert. Knowing Scripture. Knowing where to find it quickly if it's not memorized. 
Pray without ceasing. That's as much about being ready to pray as it is praying itself. Be alert. Be ready. Oh, here comes the hard one. You ready? Going to get under some grills. Use your ears before your tongue. I don't need to tell you about the evil of the tongue. With it, we both bless and curse, right? And James says this ought not to be so. Listen, we all talk way too much. All right, so ladies, I'm going to do you first, and then we'll finish with the guys, all right? Have you ever noticed, I love Proverbs 31, 22 verses, 31, 10 to 32, I think it is, or 31. I believe it's one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, 22 letters, these phrases. What a wonderful and marvelous description. But you know only one verse has anything to do with talking. And you know what it says? Wisdom and kindness are on her lips. That is it. Ouch. Yeah, that can be an ouch, but oh men, hold on. What does God tell us in Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Is there any talking there? Most of the time Christ was on the cross, he was what? He was silent. Most of the time during his beatings and court hearings, he was what? He was silent. We talk way too much. We feel like we have to talk way too much. And then this one hit me. You know what? If we're focusing on listening, guess what we can't do? We can't gossip because our mouths are closed. Use these two a lot more than this one. Okay, I'm done. And the last one, here's your last application. Stand firm. Stand firm. You are equipped by God who created the universe and he has given us his armor for defense, for defense and his word for our offense. So I have one final scripture, one final illustration to wrap this up for you. Here's the scripture, obviously Ephesians 6. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We forget that a lot. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And then he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil, that kind of implies standing firm to resist. Resist the devil, and having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, at the beginning of verse 14. So there's three stand firms, maybe a fourth. So what are we supposed to do? Stand firm. Thank you. All right, here's your final illustration. But we need to apply this to ourselves, me included. Some 12 years following his graduation from Princeton Theological Seminary, the great Donald Gray Barnhouse, pastor who was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for a while, was invited to preach at chapel at Princeton. So his former professor, Robert Dick Wilson, sat attentively in the first row. After Barnhouse had concluded his message, 
Wilson approached him and said, if you come back, I will not come to hear you preach again. I come only once. I am glad that you are a big godder, G-O-D-E-R, big godder. When my boys come back to the seminary, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. And then I know what kind of ministry they will have. Barnhouse was confused and asked him to explain himself. Well said, Wilson, some men have a little God and they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration of Scripture and their preservation and transmission to us. They have a little God and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. You, pointing to Barnhouse, says, have a great God and he will bless your ministry. You are a big godder. Do I need to make the application for us? In your life, your Christian walk, brothers and sisters, are you a big godder or a little godder? Remember, you may only interact with someone once in this life. What are they going to see? In your marriage, would your spouse call you a big godder or a little godder? What about your kids, family, friends? Big godders are equipped daily by their big God. They practice the disciplines daily. And that's where the thought hit me. If Pastor Robeson were here today, he'd pound on this pulpit and he would say, don't be a little godder. Don't be big godders. Let's pray. Father, we come to you astonished at your word, astonished at the problem of our sin and our disrespect and our disloyalty to you. But we also come even more astonished that you provided the answer through your son, Jesus Christ, and that through his blood, we will have eternity for you. You have promised it. Jesus has said he's preparing a place for us and will come to get us and take us there. We need to remember not to live on expectations, but to live on promises. And you have promised us in this scripture today, you will equip us. Lord, my prayer today for myself and my brothers and sisters is to feel that so deep in our souls that the world can do nothing to us because our big God is equipping big godders. Lord, we know in the flesh we'll fail, but we're here to lift one another up, not to devour one another. Help us in that, Lord. Strengthen us continually, daily, by your word, in this church, with amazing preaching from our pastors and elders, teaching, counseling, all that happens here. Father, we are so blessed to be in this congregation. Let us never take that for granted. And let us walk out this door 
big godders, but with humility for those who are hurting and those who are not yet in your kingdom. All this we ask in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.